So welcome to the Edgy Pierce Podcast. Uh, today I got my lovely guest and my sorority sister, uh, Dr. Adrian oh. Dixon. We in the building. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm not gonna go through your bio because you've been cited over six thousand times. And if these people oh don't know, yeah, I know, right? It's crazy. Wow. I'm sitting. And I'm looking. I'm like, yikes, man. So cited over six thousand times. Y'all don't know this woman. Y'all better Google her. But uh, we got we got a lot of things we got to talk about today. So. I don't want to belabor the point, right? Um, so who's your favorite Saints player of all time? Oh, of all time, of all time. You know what? I really liked Pierre Thomas. Really? Yeah, you know what? Pierre was a soldier. Pierre would um he he gave he left it all on the field every time and the and the i think what people remember is that game san francisco mm. um where you know we lost it in the last few seconds but they tried to take pierre out and if mm. pierre doesn't have severe brain damage i would be surprised i mean they knocked him out cold but every game pierre left it on the field like that so you skipping over bobby abear dalton hilliard you 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 skipping over the whole gener- the whole old gen- Earl Campbell all them. No, Earl Campbell. I didn't know Earl Campbell. Earl Campbell played, played for the Saints. He yes. must have had like a really short tenure. Yeah, it was it was, it was, it was, it was towards the tail end of his career. Mm-hmm. But. I'm okay. So before, so I did like the um the Dome Patrol. Now don't ask me all the names. <laughs> I don't know all the names. Yeah. Um, but I remember their presence on the field. I love Jim Moore as a coach. Mm. Because he was so animated and he would just be so exasperated. Unlike Sean, like Sean, every now and then will flash, but mm. every time Jim Moore went to a press conference, he was just like, Yeah, yeah. what? Yeah. Yeah, He's those Moore, those Jim Moore press conferences are are uh <laughs> it's something else. But I say all this to say I'm a Cowboys fan. How could you be a Cowboys fan? Very easily, very easily. I, I my, my little league team was the Cowboys, and I, I just ne- I never switched back. <laughs> really? Wow. Well, they're not doing so well this season. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I felt so bad for Dex, but you know. Yeah. Well, you know it happens. It's it's it's, it's the nature of the business, right? All right. So so let's jump in. So <laughs> you've taught you've taught K to twenty, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a wide range of students. Mm-hmm. What's your what was your favorite uh landing point? Um I, I so now that I'm not teaching sixth graders, I really miss them. I, I miss teaching children. What I think for a lot of educators who leave the classroom, it's not the kids. It's never the kids. It's usually the you know all the stuff that comes along with teaching in a in a school district and our days, the day how the days are structured. Um, what we have control over. That's really what drove me from leaving um, the classroom. But I miss children. I substitute teach and I take every opportunity I can to be in a classroom. Um, So I like that. I really like where I am now. I love my graduate students at the University of Illinois. Um, I have um, a number of what I love about the University of Illinois is that I have a large cadre of students of color. And so I feel like I'm really contributing to creating the next generation of um, scholars of color. And so that's really fulfilling for me. Um, So on a different end. So when I taught in New Orleans, it was sewing into and 
working with young folks who will one day grow up to be really fabulous. They were fabulous people. They will be fabulous adults. And I see them as adults now. Um, and then working with um, scholars at the other end who um, want to do really important work. So I can't say that I do miss children, but I like what I do now. Yeah. That's 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 amazing. I'm glad that you like what you do. I also taught sixth grade. Uh, a very interesting year. <laughs> they are. They are because they're kind of between babies, but then they're supposed to be big kids. Yeah. 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 Uh, very interesting. But I mean, but uh, you know, I taught in Baltimore City. Oh. So okay. if you teach in Baltimore City, you can teach anywhere. But I mean, I'm pretty sure that people that taught in New Orleans say the same thing. Yes, because I know when I um, worked with student teachers, I would go into classrooms and stuff that they would complain about with the students. I was like, this is really nothing because I would walk into a classroom. Kids didn't know me from Adam and would get with the program. Right. Be ready to engage, ready to learn. And um, so I didn't see what the problem was. I mean, it's, it's about it's about having a high bar for kids. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter like what, what school you're in. You you can be right. in a Catholic, you can be in a parochial school, you can be in a charter school, you can be in a public school. If you got high expectations for kids, then the kids are gonna uh, raise to those expectations. Yep, yep, yep. All right. So you're a former core member. Yes, former team. Ninety one. Ninety one. I'm an OG. Look, I've been yeah, in, I was in it way back when. Was that like the first class? No, the first class was 1990. I was 90. second year of the core. Second year. So my my former uh my former uh principal a uh, supervisor at uh, Harlem Village Academy, Laurie Werner. Shout out Laurie Werner. She was uh in one of those first two classes. I'm not sure if it was the first one or if it was the second one. Okay. But um yeah. So what's so your the thought? First, the first class was 500. My uh, first uh, core was 500. They expanded the core to um to 750, 700, something like that. So, um, so, uh, so we were just a little bigger and I thought, you know, it's, it was interesting. Um, (laughs) I have great friendships. I will say that when I was in the core, um, it's not like it is now. Mm -hmm. So the, um, the kinds of support that we got, we really had to rely on each other, um, to, to develop each other, we had, um, I mean, I still have friends, I mean, lifelong friends that I made for my first year in the core, second year in the core. Um, and uh, we had to rely on not only each other, but also we had to rely on um, our colleagues. So I, when I describe how I learned to teach, I describe it as an apprentice model that I learned. I, was, I benefited from veteran Black teachers in my school who literally would take me to the side and would say, um, uh, here's how you put this bulletin board up, or here's what you need to think about when you're designing your lessons or blah, 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 blah. And so, um, because I, I didn't get that in Teach for America, Teach for America was only in its second year when I joined. So, you know, naturally, um, I think they were learning as they went along. We had 10 weeks in the course, so I'm a little surprised that, um, you know, the core that they've decided to cut it to five weeks because 10 weeks just wasn't enough. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're in higher ed now and we talk yes. all, 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 alternative certification routes. Yeah. Uh, I went alternative certification route. Uh, my program was uh, project site support. It was through Morgan State University oh, okay. uh, in 2003. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was similar to TFA, except Morgan had gotten like this whole windfall of funding from D.C. Mm-hmm. And so they a whole lot of us in a cohort and we just rocked out 
Yeah. Uh, if I had to do over again, I probably would have uh, went TFA through Hopkins only for like name recognition. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but I, but I love my experience that I had at Morgan because similar to you, like my professors were so hands on yeah. in terms of like coming to the school, in right. terms of modeling lessons, in terms of giving me feedback, or whatever. So I felt like the the feedback that I get that I got from uh, my professors was probably better than the feedback that I was getting from school leaders at the time. Mm, okay. So I, you know, I, I will say that I because when were you? When did you do that program? Two thousand three. 2003. Okay. Um, so Teach for America was young. They relied on actually in-service teachers. So you would get a um, master teacher, um, who, someone who was in the district, preferably in your school, although that didn't always happen, um, who, um, and I don't know if they got a stipend or not, I'm not really sure, but you would get some support from a master teacher. Um, and uh, so, so there was more of an engagement with the people in the district. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that that is necessarily the case because Teach for America tries to do a lot of stuff in-house by using um, MDLTs or M yeah, MDLTs. So um, uh, teacher support folks who, have, who are, most of them are recent um, alums. So I say that the challenge is you don't get the kind of intergenerational wisdom. So you have the kind of veteran teacher who can help you with the nuts and bolts, but also with the bigger vision. Um, and, um, and so I, I had a great principal um, who literally had a checklist of what our room should look like that I relied on. She, you had to have a plant, Preferably live, but it could be plastic. But she wanted so something green. You the plant mom for for. <laughs> I mean, but she she had you know you had to have this bulletin board, that bulletin board. You needed to have a library. You should have a um um. You should. We had a phrase every year. We had an inspirational phrase. It had to be across the front of the room so that when you walked in the room, you saw. Like she had a checklist, and she would come in your room, your classroom, and she would check off if those things were there. And if they were missing, be like, uh, "Miss Dixon, you need to get your classroom together." And so, you know, being a novice teacher, I was like, oh, "Okay," but um, so I benefited from that kind of real didactic um, leadership from my principal, who then passed it on to veteran teachers who were already invested in our children and then us by extension. So um, us being the younger teachers. So I, um, you know, I had the benefit of, of a, a, a strong veteran staff when I became, when I was learning to become a teacher. So any, any healthy criticism for them now, any, any helpful feedback for them in terms of like the experience that you had in comparison to the experiences that they go through now? I think what they don't get now is they don't get that intergenerational wisdom. So I, I will say in most districts that have been reformed, like New Orleans, like Camden, like Newark to a certain extent, um, Detroit um, to a certain level schools. So districts that have a proliferation of, of, of young schools, mostly chartered, have tend to have young staff. So they have new school leaders who may not have taught, um, have a lot of experience teaching. And then you have te veterans who are Teach for America Corps members who are in their third year. They're the veteran, right? They're in their fourth year. They're the vet veteran. So, you know, it's the, it's the, I always tell students it's the art and the science of teaching and you get that from practice and you won't be a stellar teacher 
in two years and three years and four years. Um, you'll get better over time. Um, and it does help to kind of mentor other people along the way. Um, but I think what our core members really struggle with now is not having that intergenerational wisdom where you can talk to somebody who's 10 years in the game, seven years in the game, 20 years, you know, and they, they've stuck with it and they, and, you know, teaching it ebbs and flows. Um, so I think that they don't get that. And you don't have a strong school leader who can step into your classroom at any moment and take over because they're really young. And that's, I mean, we just have to be honest about that. And um, so where they may have leadership skills in some other way, um, the kind of instructional leadership and being able to develop a teacher, I think are, I think, I think a lot of alternatively certified um, teachers, particularly Teach for America teachers, don't get that. And, and they will, I think they'll cop to that um, when pressed. Yeah. So, I mean, like one of the things that I've learned in terms of being an alt route teacher is that I wanted to go through the steps of progression before I became a school leader. Right. I felt like it was imperative for me to be a, a teacher for a certain amount of years, for me to be a dean of students for a certain amount of years, for me to be an assistant principal for a certain amount of years. And then for me to be a principal only because I wanted, I didn't, I didn't want to be long in the tooth in the classroom, but I wanted to have like all of those experiences to where I could relate to teachers mm. in terms of like what they go through on a daily basis. I feel like, you know, some, some of the criticisms for, uh, for leaving the classroom after two years to become a school leader are rightful criticisms. Like, I, I don't, I don't, yeah. I, I don't see it. I don't see it. That That's one of the criticisms that I, I have as well in terms of, uh, you know, alternative routes, uh, certifications, but in their defense, the system is set up for them to be successful and for them to for them to come out and, and, and run schools and do all the things that they're doing. So but are they successful? I guess we could I mean you know, when I say success, when you say successful, not meaning like classroom success or school success. I mean like life and longevity success because mm. like you know, they do step up a level in terms of like what they're being paid and you know their socioeconomic status changes, right? Um but that would weigh heavy on me if I, if I was running a school and I didn't feel like I was adequately prepared to do it. Yeah, because it's because I think your point is it benefits them. Right. So yeah. there's pay increases. Is that good for children? And so if we think about, you know, again, is it good for children to have someone running a school who taught for two years and they can't they can't effectively lead a staff of teachers? Um or step in again and 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 be the instructional leader. That's what school leaders used to be, instructional leaders. Um, and so I think um, I think the benefits are individual to that school leader. It's certainly, and we see that people, their um, trajectories are amazing, right? They lead schools, then they're leading um, CMOs, and then the next thing you know, they're running whole entire school districts. Um, with very little experience. And and is that good for children? And here's the question I would have. Are they going to Scarsdale? No. And they're going know, to Newark. So, uh, come on. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> they're not going, you know, they're not going to um, Clayton, Missouri, which is a high wealth city, uh, uh, municipality in St. Louis. They might go to Ferguson or um, Normandy, but they're not going, they're not going to high wealth um, school districts, Bloomfield Hills. They're not getting hired in um, high wealth um, school districts. So they get to practice. And that's my abiding issue. Even with Teach for America teachers, 
um, or, or um, teachers that don't get enough training. They're learning on the backs of our children. And I would say, you know, so I have pushed back when I worked in a teacher ed program on programs that want to be um, urban ed programs that, you know, are, I don't know that we do enough to train them to go into urban classrooms. And I don't think it's fair that people learn on the backs of our children. It's not fair to our kids. They deserve the very best. Um, and they deserve people who are thoughtful about their teaching and their leadership. And they don't often get that. And that's my, you know, that's my, um, that's my criticism. Understood. Understood. And so, you know, I, I, I feel for the teacher that, um, I feel for the teacher that has experience, that has skin in the game, that has to work in that environment of a, a school leader that they know more than, but they weren't provided with the same opportunities because of the skin that they're in. Like yeah. that, that, that bothers me. That bothers yeah. me a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I agree. I mean, think about being grown, right? You've been in this district for however long. And you weren't, you didn't have the opportunity financially. You couldn't afford to go do Broad for a summer or whatever. Broad alone. Broad alone. I'm just saying there are those programs exist and they're designed to really maximize opportunities for, um, for people who go through a program like Teach for America. They're not designed for grown Miss Jenkins who's been teaching for 25 years and she, or 20 years or 15 years, and she just can't afford to take a summer off or take a year off and go through this broad program. And so, um, and also they're not looking for Miss Jenkins, right? They're yeah, looking for Chad who did Teach for America and then worked at McKinsey, right? Or who worked at Morgan Stanley and now decided they want to do a career change or whatever. They're not looking for Miss Jenkins. So that's a flaw in that program. And that stuff needs to be called out. That I'm not disagree. I don't disagree. I mean, even that. if, say, we, okay, Tamika. Tamika did Teach for America, went to Wharton and got her MBA, and then went and worked in Chase, and then decided she wanted to be a school leader. Tamika only taught for two years. Tamika may, and so, I, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad to see the sister wanted to go in education, but maybe Tamika should go teach another two or three years. Right. Maybe Tamika should need to go work in the district. Tamika doesn't have to have a school, but that's the kind. That's what those programs do, and I don't think they're good for our children. And they're not placing them in Bloomfield Hills. They're placing them in um, Detroit. Understood. Understood. Um, yeah, I, I, that trajectory is not for me. I'm pretty sure that you know I, I got the stats to be able to qualify for a broad program, but it's just not. It's not my energy. Plus. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I really like what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I really like what I'm doing. So I'm I, sorry. I, I see my friends on here. Orpheus, shout out to Orpheus. And Heather, hey, Heather. Uh, and Robert, sorry. I just saw them commenting. Yeah, they in here. Oh, <laughs> they, I, I don't know. I, I, a lot of people was expecting this to be some kind of battle. I don't know what the hell they think about, man. It doesn't have to be. And sadly, I feel like um, it's it's so polarized. The conversation is so polarized. And it's polarized in part because we all want the best for our children. And it's the pathway to get there um, is where we don't agree on the pathway. And um, um, 
and the stakes are high. The stakes is high, right? The stakes are real high. We can't afford, we can't continue to afford to lose generations. But I don't know that there, it's, it always feels like it has to be this or that, that there's no nuance. And I'll say fundamentally, here is my issue. Um, in theory, I don't, in theory, I want the best for our children. Mm -hmm. um, and not even in theory. In I want I want the best for our children. Okay. I do believe that public schools, traditionally run public schools, are the best way for most of our children. And I say this because charter schools, the way that they function, uh -huh. are selective. So, so even if they're wonderful, even if they if even if they're wonderful. Uh -huh. They still can't serve the masses of our children. So, so are you are you talking are you talking New Orleans charter schools? Or are you talking national charter schools? I'm talking most national charter schools, and we I'm know there are big charter, networks. I'm a charter school leader, huh? I'm a charter school leader. I'm you a leader know. of a charter school, and 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 we we take all kids, and we do very good. But what I'm saying is, it's not the scale, right? So you can take all kids to a certain number, right? Um, so our, our percentage of special education students, because I think that that's where this is going. No, our, it's not going there our, at all. What I'm okay, saying right. is your single site charter school yep. could only service at one time. You wouldn't be able to take 10,000 students in a school. No, not at all. Right, right. Yeah. So most charter schools, unlike public schools now, most public schools wouldn't take 10,000. They would be cut. But there, it, I taught in, a, you know, when I taught in New Orleans, I might have 37 kids on my roll. Yeah. What what made it manageable is that not all 37 came to school every day, yeah. but every day we were taking in more and more children. So it might have, I, but clearly my school wouldn't have had, you know, 10,000, but say the sixth grade exploded. We had four, we had four classes of sixth grade that were at capacity, 37 to 40 students, four classes. And every grade level, we had four um, four classes at 37 students. And at one point, my, my principal was making a breezeway a classroom just because we were at the, because they couldn't, we legally could not turn children away. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's, so that's one thing. Um, I think that um, my issue with charter schools, the way that they, and I will limit it to New Orleans, although I think there's, as the New Orleans model spreads, that there are some that New Orleans model is not spreading. The New Orleans, come on, Fred. Let's come on. We don't, <laughs> Listen, we don't so, keep so, real. So, it's no, no, in we, Newark, we, we, it's in Camden. No. Memphis has taken the state of Tennessee has taken the entire model, and all they did was change the name. The achieve the achievement district, I think, is what they call it in in Tennessee. They and they this is public. This isn't Adrian Dixon on some conspiracy theory. They took it. Detroit tried to implement it. Newark implemented it. So Camden, uh, New Jersey implemented in two places, Newark and in Camden. So let's, you know, they're, so they're not here's, here's, what I, here's what I say when I say that, right? So I am a defender of single site charter schools. Um, yeah, so single site. So so let me say what I, so I think single sites could be dope. Okay. Here's the challenge with single sites. Um, because, you know, initially way back in the day in the early 90s, um, we tried charter schools for African-centered schools. So Detroit had a number of African-centered schools. Um, there, there were a number of challenges with them. 
One, um, when they're around an idea. So in Detroit, the African-centered schools, it was inconsistent in terms of how they understood Afrocentricity, right? So, and that was even within the school. The same thing was in Buffalo, a number of places, Cleveland, Milwaukee, um, Minneapolis, I mean, places you wouldn't think, right? Tried to have these African-centered schools. Um, and they they struggled. They struggled because they couldn't. There was there was an agreement even among the black people in the school on what it meant to teach in an African centered or Afrocentric. They weren't on one accord. And this was classroom by classroom. So one, the school might have rites of passage and it looks wonderful and they're drumming in the morning and kids are, you know, saying mantras and it's dope. You go into a classroom and a teacher might have a picture of Booker T. Washington thrown up there and. Um, and she might have um, Carter G. Woodson. But when you ask her about African-centeredness, she didn't really, you know, I had to put it in there. Um, <laughs> she, she couldn't articulate an understanding of what Afrocentricity was. And so the schools lost their impact. So I say, so single site charter schools aren't necessarily a thing, but here's the challenge. And I'll say what I think the issue is in New Orleans okay. is that they're not publicly run in the sense that you have boards that represent the communities that the schools sit in. In New Orleans, most of the boards are made up of corporate folks, um, or um, so they're business leaders. They're pre predominantly white, um, well-moneyed, which I understand from a kind of pragmatic perspective, you need to be able to, you know, you need people who can fundraise, but that means that it doesn't necessarily represent the vision of the community. And so meetings aren't typically held at a time that's convenient for families. I mean, so the governance of it is not democratic. And that's the problem. That, that's what we see in New Orleans. Now there are, because all schools have been forced to be chartered. There's one that we all love. And, um, and it was a high performing traditional school that was forced to charter um, and they try really hard to um, to service the community but they didn't want to do that and the and the principal didn't want to be a charter school but she had to she was forced to be a charter school that was going to be sent given over to another large charter management group and she wanted to retain her school for her families and she took everybody it was a, a you know we tried to you know keep it under the radar but the school consistently did well and charter management groups were chomping at the bit to take over that school because it would make them look good. Um, veteran black teachers, regular, you know, she didn't skim off the top on the kids. Um, a strong veteran school leader who um, had been a veteran educator. And, and, you know, they what they're challenged by is trying to compete with the big box charter schools like KIPP. Um, in well, I mean, you know, I've work with Kip, but and Kip knows its problems. It's not like I'm telling tales out of school. They know what their problems are, and everybody knows that they're a problem. Um, and uh, so, in a, it creates an unfair, quote unquote, competition. And so, as Black people, when we think about kind of liberation and a capitalist education system, is always going to be unfair and inequitable for us. And so, for a single site school. In a, in a big market system like New Orleans, this there are a number of single site schools that are black one that are struggling because they're, they, they will never have the capital that a KIPP has or the other white um, 
the other white charter management groups. They just won't have it. KIPP has a whole, I mean, the funding structure is just, no. you know, beyond the pale and they just won't, they just can't compete. And that is inherently unfair. When we adopt a, a market system, a market ideology to run our schools, single site schools like yours in a big market are always going to struggle. Hey, no, 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 no. Some single site schools may it's struggle. Gonna, I mean, if no school by me is going to struggle, we're going to get it in. I mean, it's it, it, so it's kind of like having um, a bodega mm -hmm. and then here comes Walmart. Yeah, but hey, listen, so listen. Is Walmart. Whole Foods huh? tried to make Whole Foods tried to make chopped cheese, and they made a damn fool out of themselves. But I'm saying it's the same concept, and 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 school struggle, school, single site schools struggle in that kind of structure, and yeah. so, and it's based on that kind of you know capitalist market system, and so um and so it's a challenge, and we you know we're seeing that in New Orleans, it's a challenge. So we've had you know there's another structure that had to be created to support these single site schools. And that's great, but now we're creating another, you know, we just keep creating layers of bureaucracy. Understood. So you're not anti-choice. I think, I mean, so in, in theory, everybody should be able to have a choice. We don't have choice in New Orleans. That is a myth. I, I, I understand, we but we're not doing that. We do not have it. We do not, it does not exist. This is not Adrian making stuff up. Uh, no. Can I curse? Yes, we can. Okay, so I'm not making shit up. This is how you can go look on the website. Parents rank order eight schools. And then they their kid will be put into these eight schools based on some algorithm. Yep. The schools that are doing well are schools that parents literally cannot choose. Mm -hmm. And those schools that parents can't choose tend to be predominantly white. Um, Lusher is one of them. So go on and again. I'm pretty informed in terms so of what, that's, what's That is not choice. That is not choice. It, it, it's choice for the schools and for the people who run schools. It's not choice for parents. So, so if you have to rent order and the schools that parents are are able to choose from in New Orleans, most of the schools are failing. Most right. of them are failing. So um, they're they're D if they're C schools. And the, and here's the thing. If we use even their metric, it's still failing. The metric is messed up. It's a 200 point scale and schools might be getting 60 points. I see. Yeah. Are you freaking kidding me? So, oh, so, here, so here, here's, here's my concern with that. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, my whole 2021 is going to be just this whole push for just collaboration in terms of like, if you have a, a school that's 180 out of 200, right? Yeah. Then those schools should be reaching out to those schools that yeah. are 60, that yeah. are scoring 60s, that are Ds and Fs, whatever, right? Like it's some kind of collaboration, some kind of open door policy to where we can come and we can see best practices. Because, you know, a, a lot of some things are rooted in money, some things are rooted in finances, but other things are rooted in best practices. Mm -hmm. And so if I can come and I can see best practice at another school and I can kind of do things better than what I'm doing, right? By having yeah. this this whole open door collaborative po policy in New Orleans, I think that could be helpful. Sure. But another thing that I that I want for down there is, you know, I, I man, like, so my dissertation is on parent engagement mm -hmm. in urban charter schools. So right. I probably need to find a, a single site charter school down there. But but um, I say that to say, you know, I want parents to be engaged. I want parents that to be able to activate their in, in engagement, and then also follow through. So I, I was monitoring the situation in New Orleans and it doesn't look like folks went out to vote. 
I mean, that's always, it's, it's historically, unfortunately, been an issue. Um, and, it, you know, this is national, so New Orleans isn't unique in that regard, that, you know, people vote for president, they vote, they're very active during presidential elections. Off-cycle elections are hard to get people out for. I think one of the um, things that we have to do just in general, right, is to do more voter education and not not voter education on meaning it should vote, but people understand what the issues are. And I think um, and the the weight of the issues. And I just think it, you know, we just didn't um, that just what didn't happen. Um, but I think Heather asked about is there a um, is there a, a infrastructure for collaboration? And I don't know that there is. And also, I think and Heather, I mean, I think this is a question that's really important in terms of thinking about just the model in a, in a market-based system where we're competing. So schools are competing for kids because kids are money, right? Each kid, there's a, there's a, there's a dollar sign on their head. Um, and in order for me to keep my doors open, I need, I need butts and seats. So why am I going to share my quote unquote secrets with you if that child is money for me? Um, yeah. So, so, I, so I think, in that respect, not to cut you off, but in that oh, respect, no. I think it's, it's different for uh, for people in other places. Right. right. So like in New York, uh, in New York City, where there's a ton of charter schools, like it's like open door policy in terms of like, all right, you want to come like I, I can go to success for a day and it's nothing. I just make a call uh, to a school leader. I'm like, hey, listen, I want to send some teachers over there. Or if they want to come to a professional development where we are, um, they, they can come or whatever. So I think. I think New Orleans needs to needs to adopt that. And it can't be, you know, this competition amongst adults or competition amongst schools. It's got to be beneficial to kids. And that's, you know, so here's the thing. If we're really interested in changing public education, because that's what, you know, charters were supposed to kind of create some sort of innovation. And we don't necessarily see the innovation on any level um, in, New Orleans. in New Orleans. There's no intellectual innovation. Right. Um, if it's, it's, and here's one thing, and I've, I've put this to principals. Why do you have kids going to school all day long? Why do you have teachers teaching all day long? If we want to innovate. So as a university professor, I teach two classes a week and the rest of the week I get to read and think and be on podcasts. Um, and so if we treated teachers like intellectuals, so they teach their, however, maybe it's six hours you know, a week that they teach. But the rest of the time during the school day, they get to go take a class at the university. They get to um, sit in book groups that are not after school book groups, right? That they get the time during the day. Like, let's think outside the box. And that's innovation. We're not, public education is not innovating. And we're not innovating around funding. Um, we're not thinking differently about funding. It would be awesome if people who run um, philanthropies would think about the funding structure that's not tied to test scores that um, that they think differently about is the is the um, property tax structure a good way to fund schools? Can we think, you know, can they incentivize states to figure out a different kind of um, funding structure for public education that that maintains the public control over those funds? Because what we have now, we have public funds being being under the purview of private boards. When charter schools select their own boards, that is inherently undemocratic. And that's what's happening. 
And so you have a group of wealthy people who sit on boards who get public funds and then they make decisions about those public funds. That is undemocratic and that is a problem. And that is that is one of my kind of abiding critiques of charter schools, even though I think in terms of intellectual innovation, they could be awesome. That doesn't happen. And the control, the private control over public funds is always going to be an issue for me. Um, and I and I don't think that that's fair. I don't think it's democratic. Um, and I think we need to blow all that up. So so if they want, if people want to be disruptors, disrupt in ways that really matter, not in these kind of, you know, grafting so, official ways. So here, here's my pushback for that. Right. So like at being at the same school for, for 10 years, I've kind of seen like <laughs> the dynamics of my board and like how it works and how it doesn't work. Right. Um, and I probably got board members listening right now. And so uh, it's extremely hard uh, to make that type of time commitment or whatever. So like, although, you know, these might be folks that are in private industries and they may not be democratically elected, they're still putting in a huge time commitment that uh, allows them to be board members. So, you know, I, I don't want to totally dismiss the efforts that they give in terms of uh, in terms of their volunteer work or whatever, uh, especially those that don't have ulterior motives, uh, those board members that may be parents, uh, those board members that may be uh, aunties or whatever that are just adjacent to the school and want to see the school do well. Um, I, I don't want to um, uh, demonize those folks, but I, I understand where you're coming from. No, and and but we don't typically. I mean, if you go go look on any charter school management organization in New Orleans, um, many and there are multi, There are people who are on multiple boards, and so they sit on a number of school boards. Um, and so they're lawyers, they're CEOs. Not that they're not important people. Some don't even live in New Orleans. Um, I, I I find that problematic. Um, I think that boards, you know, again, I think they should reflect the local communities. Um, and I think that they should be elected. I don't think charters, charter management organizations should select their board members. I think it should be a massive. And, and that, again, is an innovation. Right. If we're going to be innovative, let's be innovative. Um, and so let's you know, I, I think they should be elected. Understood. Um but see, but here, here, so here's my pushback, right? Mm -hmm. So you you were in New Orleans prior to um, mm -hmm. you were in New York, New Orleans prior to Katrina, prior yeah. prior to things shifting uh, as as charter schools. Shit was bad then too. So let me say this: there were, and I was a teacher, so I have a different view. Um, I I can't name. And I also was a um, grade level um, leader. So meaning I went to district meetings. Um, that was one of my roles was to go to district meetings on curriculum and whatnot. Um, I felt disempowered as a teacher because often um, the district would have initiatives. And as, a, as the grade level leader, I would have to go and get information about these initiatives and bring it back to my school. And I felt as a teacher, my voice wasn't represented. Um, and that's what inspired me to go to graduate school. Actually, I wanted to go to graduate school to get a graduate degree to come back and work in the district and then work at the state of Louisiana. And it just shifted um, because of where I went to school. But um, so I felt disempowered as a teacher. But I will say I in in all those um, interactions that I had at the district level with teachers who were also grade level leaders, 
I haven't, I didn't meet a teacher who didn't love her students or his students and who were teaching for a paycheck. We actually, I started teaching, um, I was making $19,000. And I always tell my, this wasn't 1890. This was <laughs> And when I left after five years, I was making $22,000 a year. I left teaching because I could not afford, I had two children. I would never have been able to afford a home. I tried to buy a house. They're like, you just don't make enough money. Um, I, I, we just uh, they, the public it was just released uh, what Mississippi teachers are making now. Uh, I just saw that in the in and they I thought, thought I saw something that said twenty nine thousand dollars. I mean it's obscene. I made more money as a graduate student as a master student at the University of Michigan than I made as a full time teacher in New Orleans. My kids uh, my kids qualified for free and my children my own children qualified for free and reduced lunch. Um, and, and I was a full-time teacher, a real teacher getting a real salary. So I left teaching because I just could not afford anymore. So I say that to say is that the people that I met and that I worked with were not there to collect a check. The check wasn't nothing. The check wasn't worth it. People loved their students. Um, what we were burdened by, I think that, and, and I see this in charter schools is that teachers are disempowered. In most of the charter schools in New Orleans, that's in, every, that's in every school. Just, just I know you're in New Orleans, but like that's in every school. You know, they're given a curriculum, so creating teacher-created materials, created curriculum that doesn't exist in, in most charter schools. Teachers are handed a curriculum, um, and so I felt disempowered. The metrics, honestly, the metrics then and the metrics now, it's changed, but the outcomes are the same. So, you know, the the scores now are as bad or worse on on the whole as they were pre-Katrina. So you have schools that are CDNF schools, and this is their, when I say theirs, the ed performers, this is their metric. They created this metric and schools are still failing and they've been failing. So, um, so you know, if we want to compare failing then and failing now, why is failing now acceptable? No, no, no. Why is I, so, failing now and I lack of governance acceptable? Yeah. I don't think um, they're failing ever. Is, I don't think the failing ever is acceptable. And here's, but, but let me let me say because I want to say a couple of things because people use and it's some it's misinformation. So um, there were some fiduciary um, challenges um, in New Orleans, and one of the things that came out actually in the report. So I would encourage people to go and look at the um, the uh, the reports of the. Um, of the school district when they had been taken over and they had to have a uh, accountant come in that actually it was a poor and is an antiquated accounting system that so month they, they were saying month, people were stealing money actually it was just a uh, an antiquated accounting system that as funding became more complex the district like many bureaucracies just hadn't kept up to pace with the um with the kind of accounting system they needed to to explain where monies had gone. So Title I monies, you know, there's a lot of oversight. So um, here, so we have some fiscal inconsistencies now that are just outright theft. And this is documented. Again, this is Nadrian Dixon with some conspiracy theories. This is outright theft where people have stolen money, they've misappropriated money, they've hired relatives. Um, and so if we're going to talk about kind of how New Orleans was horrible before. It's horrible now, but we're okay with keeping these schools open because people are ready okay. for their ideology. 
we we are not okay with that. I think that my me, right? So I feel like if you're a bad public school, if you're a bad charter school, you're a bad parochial school, if you're bad for kids, then you shouldn't be open. And right. so in my mind, I have this whole thing about loft conversions because mm. some of those older school buildings would be very good loft conversion or low income housing for mm. teachers. Right. Oh, so <laughs> I mean, so, but this is what I'm saying. We're not people are not thinking outside the box, right? So there are schools that are closed, school buildings that were closed that were sold to developers to be condos in, you know, in the Treme or in Central City. That doesn't serve our people. But if you're saying let's, so one way to think outside the box, we want to train teachers, take a school that we're not going to reopen. We'll turn it into housing. We'll bring teachers from another state. They can, they can live in those, live in those uh, converted schools and walk down to the next school. And then we have a, you know, a system of training teachers. We're not thinking like that. We're not, we're not thinking outside the box. I do think that we can think differently and blow up public education. And one of the things I think, again, is around the scheduling. We still use an agricultural Everybody calendar. Everybody don't deserve that scheduling you're talking about. Huh? <laughs> Everybody don't deserve that scheduling you're talking about. But I'm we saying, gotta, why, gotta do, why do our kids... We got to put some parameters around that in terms of like... Because listen, you know, you're in high air down, right? And you know that not every teacher education program is created equal, right? right. And so you'll have some teacher education programs where people are ready to go. They're ready to get in the ring. Yeah, and you got some teacher education programs that people still in the locker room, and they're yep. gonna be in the locker room for the next seven years. You got to yep. coach and them. And they up. shouldn't be teaching. They, I, I think, you know, here. Let me say this: yeah. um, there are people, and this is true in Teach for America. I I was recently working in Teach for America, so I can say this: that there are people who should not be teaching, but because in um, in I will say uh, organizations that are heavily influenced by white culture that are framed around whiteness. Putting people out um, is is hard, and we don't want to do it. We don't want to. We don't want to tell somebody they can't do something, um, particularly white people. Um, and so I was. I see you doing that little CRT thing right there. I see. Huh? I, see I see you doing that little CRT thing right there. I, I mean, it's like in a university program. Well, there are plenty of people who are like, we shouldn't. They they don't need to be teaching, but but the university was afraid to be sued. So you let them go through and get a little, you know, get their little degree and just hope and pray that they don't get a job. Or if they get a job, they'll be fired in the first year because but they should not have gone through the program. Yeah, um, but, but, here, but here's the thing. Here's the problem with that. Right. So you'll get those teachers that squeak through the program. Right. They don't get to sue the school because they squeak through the program, got their certification or whatever. Then they come to a school leader like me that ain't having that shit. Right. Right. And then right. I end up getting sued when the school district should have been, I mean, uh, the, the university should have been the one that got sued, right? Well, but no, I end up getting sued because I'm like, oh, well, he's... Everybody, he's, and, and Orpheus raises an important point that teachers don't begin their most important education until after they begin. And I, I do think that that's true. I think you learn, you understand better what you're learning when you're in your pre-service, when you're actually in service, but we can do a better job of meshing of melding so, service and in service, so extend we the, longer internships. Extend the service, right? So, 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 instead of, so I, I was and I was talking to one of your sorority sisters. I got to link y'all up. Uh, she might be in the comments. She may not be. I don't know. But um, she was talking. We were talking about just like innovation in terms of higher ed, and she was saying that uh, the pre-service should be longer. So like there should yeah. be two years that should be dedicated to folks going out, doing observations, uh, yeah. doing student teaching yep. and like doing all those things. But here's, that should be, 
But here's, it costs money. And so we end up, we being people of color, end up pr being priced out, right? Because it's, a, you know, who, can't nobody pay for you to be in college and you, you're you not making any money. That's it, It's expensive for that. So you're paying yeah. tuition and um, you're not necessarily, you're delaying your, your degree unless they put it in a four year, which in a four year program, you also want people to be smart. And so you got to think about you know the classes. I'm saying because you have two years worth of classwork. Do you want somebody to be a social studies teacher and they've only had two years worth of their content? Right. Oh. And then we're doing two years for the internship. So it's, you know, if you and, and we have as a former social studies teacher. Well, I'm not former because I'm going back into the classroom one day, but. As a social studies teacher, you need more than two years of content. In a four-year structure, it's hard. Um, and I work in a university, and white people are tired of paying their, their children's tuition beyond four years. So there's a push for us to make sure that people graduate in four years. And we're saying, can nobody prepare a good teacher in four years if everything has to happen in four years? They have to become experts and master content. And then they have to also have these mastery experiences at the pre-service level. So you're talking about two and two then, two years worth of content and two years worth of an internship. If, you know, and again, the, people are putting pressure on universities to get people out in four years. So then something has to change, right? So my thing is why don't we partner with school districts? And then in Ohio tried this um, to, that you would get your license and it would be graduated and the relationship between the student teacher and the university would be extended. Now, some universities were scared of that because you're on the hook longer for this person that you are graduating, but you're saying that they are a good teacher. And so you're on the hook for them a lot longer. I think that should happen. Um, but it's, it's not cheap, you know, it ain't cheap. And, um, but I think, you know, again, if we're going to think outside the box, let's innovate there. We're not innovating in those ways. Well, if the democratic socialists, I'm a Republican. Oh gosh. But if the democratic socialists have their way, then it's free college. So then everybody can get trained. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> All right. So, um, what is, all right. So uh, a lot of folks in, uh, in higher ed uh, cause for teachers are not adequately prepared in the classroom. So they're not adequately prepared to teach our kids is mm -hmm. what I'll say. So you may get some people that get out of these programs that can go and teach in Scarsdale. Right. But they can't necessarily come and teach in Harlem. Right. What are we saying to those teacher ed programs? Um. Well, you know, I used to work in one that... Um, I've worked in many. I think they're challenged in a number of ways. They're challenged. It, it, it's, it, so it's similar in terms of who's teaching our children. If you've never taught black kids well, how are you going to prepare people to teach black kids well? Right. And um, that's true in Teach for America. That's true in alt cert programs. That's true in university programs. Right. If you have to have folks who have who have been skilled at this in order to train people who are skilled at it. And so there is a pipeline issue around the preparation area. Um, and I left teacher prep because it was um, soul crushing. 
Um, and I just got tired of fighting white women about what, you know, the, the, how we need to treat our trained teachers to teach our kids. Um, and I had high blood. I just wasn't going to do I wasn't willing. And I uh, had a senior colleague tell me that I didn't need to be Jesus Christ. I, that we already Jesus Christ. I don't need to be a martyr. And so I left teacher ed and went to ed policy because fighting with white people on how to best train or even to think differently about training teachers to go train our uh, teach our kids. I just wasn't willing to have those fights. And some of it was around um, what they didn't want to do placements in urban schools because the students had decided that they were never going to teach in an urban school. You, it's, it's likely that as a novice teacher, you'll go teach in an urban district, then you'll go teach in a suburban district. So Absolutely. we would prepare you for that. But they would, I don't want to do that. So therefore, if they don't want to do it, they don't want to do their internship in an urban school district. And they were letting them choose. You don't get to choose. You don't get to choose that. Um, they didn't like equity and diversity courses. They didn't like this. They didn't like that. They don't want to read this book. They don't want to read. And ain't nobody got. And I'm not. I'm not fighting over that. You're not even. Not, not even. Do you not have to fight over it? But like you, you basically saying you basically writing a ticket to say you want to go and be racist. Exactly. Exactly. You, you got a New Orleans question, and uh, Miss Hankins is in, and and she. Yeah, been... come on, Lona. <laughs> so she says, uh, "Tell us what you plan to do here in New Orleans." So what I'm trying to do actually is um, I got some funding to do some professional development for black teachers in New Orleans. Um, and I've been challenged with because of COVID um, is to find black teachers who aren't exhausted and who want to do this, um, do this professional development. And it's around developing them as black teachers. So, you know, if you've been um, and any of you who've been a teacher in a district that often professional development, particularly around teaching our kids is normed around white teachers. And the focus tends to be around white teachers. And so black teachers don't get an opportunity to think about themselves, who they are, um, what it means to teach black children, um, and so we um, designed this kind of PD to specifically um, target black teachers in New Orleans. So it's very localized. It's not for people who want to come to New Orleans. Um, it's for teachers who are in New Orleans and, and teaching right now. Um, so that's what I'm that's, working on. That's dope. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and shout out to you for that. Uh, if there's any way that I can help or anybody in my crew can help, we would love to do that. Yeah, if you know what, uh, just tell them to email me. We'll do. Uh, Miss uh, Dr. Wait. She says uh, CRT and development critical consciousness needs to be a part of teacher in educational leadership programs. What are your absolutely. thoughts? I, I absolutely. And that's, you know, it, it on paper, people agree on teachers should be culturally relevant. We should talk about this. What happens in practice is that in most programs, there is a resistance and a reluctance among colleagues. Now I say the young people or the pre-service teachers, you kind of understand that because they don't necessarily know. What's frustrating is that teacher educators in programs, and again, this is not limited because I worked on staff at Teach for America. Um, this is not limited to, um, to university people. I think there's something that happens to people who um, identify as teacher educators um, that they over identify with the pre-service teachers and they don't want to hurt their feelings. Um, and so you can't push 
you can't challenge, you can't make anybody reflect and contemplate and feel uncomfortable. And so you see a lot of stuff on paper that doesn't actually ever happen in practice. And if it has happened, the person who's leading that leaves very quickly. They're not there long. <laughs> gotcha. All right, so uh, I, Lone was coming for me. Uh, <laughs> oh. Uh, uh, Miss uh, Miss Hankins, I just did a, a speech for uh, the Louisiana Association of Public Charter Schools uh, maybe two weeks ago, and I gave them a huge discount to come down there to do it. So you know, that's 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 my energy. Um, um, I don't know Vashon Smith, but I'd love to um, learn more about what you're doing, Vashon. So Dr. Smith is uh, he actually has a podcast as well. They have uh, a podcast it's called the AOS podcast and it's uh, an alpha and omega and a sigma. Um, Dr. Smith is, is, uh, is the sigma. And then uh, uh, the, the alpha and the omega are actually uh, doc, doctoral students. That yeah. is so cute. Did y'all do that on purpose? We did. We did. We did. Okay. We designed it to be that way. So you got to come and bless their show. Okay. Um, um, Heather, got- Heather yeah. is asking, who's the goat? Heather, your girl is the goat. I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so speaking of which, mm-hmm. 6,000 sites. Yeah. I didn't know because I didn't count, but that's. And so I'm going, I'm going through, I'm going through your CV and I'm like, shit, it's like five pages and like, it's like books and articles and like all kind. you're a legend in CR. So then I was talking to somebody earlier today. I'm like, damn, I need to go through my dissertation. And then I, I'm, I'm going through the references. I'm like, shit, she's in my dissertation. You can't be in it. You can't you can't use CRT as a framework and you not be in the re- the work cited. I'd be trying to do the work. I'd be yeah. trying. I'd be trying. Yeah. I, I'm I'm appreciative, man. I'm 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 I feel like I'm I'm in here with greatness. So thank you for coming and kicking with me. So we're gonna go into closing thoughts. So tell me your closing thoughts. You can come for whoever you want to come for, but I'm just appreciative that you came on and we were able to have dialogue. Well, I mean, I think so. Here's I think that the wonderful beauty of black people is that we are diverse in every way, right? We're diverse ideologically, we're diverse phenotypically, we're diverse geographically, spiritually, everything. Um, I think where we have common ground is that we love our children and we want the best for our children. Um, I think that what we all suffer from is a divide and conquer. We are, we are, we are, yeah, we suffer from divide and conquer. Um, and that we have to think about what is the best for most of our people. And I don't know that, um, we often have those conversations. Um, and so my, I will always side with, I believe that um, a a robust public infrastructure is the best for our people. Um, That's not to say that people shouldn't go to private and blah, 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 blah. But public funds should be run by the public and that's not happening with our schools. And most of our children are in public schools. They're not in private schools. Almost all of our children are are in public schools and that needs a rigorous public oversight. And it doesn't matter if they're in in a charter or a traditional public school, um, that public engagement is important. Um, And I'm not romanticizing public schools by any, traditional public schools by any stretch. All of them need to have rigorous um, oversight. And so, um, you know, that's that's fundamentally um, what I believe in. Um, I think, um, yeah, so I think that's what our struggles are. And I wish, I wish that we could have these conversations and I've been guilty of it, you know, 
um, of um, holding tightly to an ideology. Um, and um, uh, so I wish that we could have more productive conversations um, about what's happening. And I will say that New Orleans is not working. It's failing and it's been failing since 2015, uh, since 20, uh, 2005. It's been a constant failure. It's been a failure on every level. Um, parents are not um, rigorously engaged. There's not uh, transparency. Um, there's almost no opportunity for public um, engagement in a meaningful way. Um, and the schools are failing. Um, and that's uh, a tragedy for our children that we won't, you know, that, that they're so wedded to this market system that we can't make any inroads to change. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So I'm going to close this out. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, things are happening the way that they're happening in New Orleans. But I want to make sure that we talk about charter schools nationally mm-hmm. and not just charter schools in New Orleans because there's some things that are happening nationally that I do feel uh, falls into the, the line of innovation in terms of mm-hmm. like what we're providing for our kids. And so, you know, it, I, the problem that I have with New Orleans is, you know, one similar to what I said earlier is that there shouldn't be any C schools in A schools. If you're a C school or a D school, then you should be able to share best, pra- best practices with those A schools and vice versa so that, you know, you're doing what's in the best interest of kids. Mm-hmm. I think there's too much that happens in terms of adults centering things on them and not yeah. centering things on children. I mean, um, we in, in a city that is so poor, we have people who run schools who are making $300,000. It is obscene. It's obscene that, that that kind of money is there. I'm not, I'm not in nobody's pockets. But, that's I mean, but I am I am in a city where people are, are losing their housing, where people aren't can't eat. And this was before Katrina. I am. I'm mad. I'm mad that in a public school, there's the CEO is making three hundred thousand. I'm mad about it. I'm mad about it. I'm mad that teachers are making maybe 40, 50. But it's all a secret because they got to sound they got to sign NDAs. I'm mad about that. And that's what I mean about public oversight of, of public funds. When you have charter management organizations, they can set these salaries. And then the only way we can find out is we have to go through public information um, requests and and hope that they'll fulfill them because sometimes they don't. I'm mad about that. I think it's obscene and I don't think it should happen. And, um, and, uh, and, And it doesn't trickle down to our children. It doesn't trickle down to the classroom. Well, so thank you for coming on and having this amazing conversation with me. Um, You know, we we may not be on the same ends of the spectrum, but for us to be able to come together and do what we do, I appreciate you, Root to the Soul Wars. All right, that's that calm and love. You can't kill the calm and love. (laughs) You guys have been listening to the EduPierce podcast. We'll see you next. uh, We'll we'll see you tomorrow. I got CEO Charlene Reed with me tomorrow. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. So what?